Welcome, I'm Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki in Memoriam podcast. This podcast is created by Anna Pezhanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute, New York. Penderecki in Memoriam podcast unveils a multifaceted portrait of Krzysztof Penderecki with commentary from musicians, colleagues, radio programmers, and writers who lend insight and memories of Poland's greatest modern composer. This podcast is part of Penderecki in Memoriam Worldwide Project, honoring the life and legacy of the great composer. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. Internationally acclaimed and six-time Grammy Award-winning conductor Leonard Slatkin is Music Director Laureate of the Detroit Symphony, Honorary Musical Director of the Orchestra Nacional de Leon, and Conductor Laureate of the St. Louis Symphony. Maestro Slatkin also maintains a rigorous schedule of guest conducting throughout the world and is an active composer, author, and educator. A recipient of the National Medal of Arts, Gold Baton Award, and the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award, among many others, Maestro Slatkin, who also holds the rank of Chevalier in the French Legion of Honor, was an esteemed colleague and friend of Christophe Penderecki. Maestro Slatkin is here with us to discuss the great composer. Hi, Leonard. Thank you for joining us for the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. You had conducted Penderecki's music before you've ever met him. Your wife, Cindy, who taught English to Penderecki's children, knew everyone in the family. She had been in Poland to celebrate his 75th birthday, and then you met him in 2013. Can you discuss this meeting and the evolution of your professional and personal relationship up until his passing? Because of Cindy, the personal contact was made actually through his wife, Elzbieta, and I was asked to come to participate in that 80th birthday celebration. There were numerous conductors and artists from all over the world for this auspicious set of dates, and it was my first visit, at least that year, in Poland. I met the composer actually at the very first rehearsal of his piece, Di Natura Sonaris No. 2. We had prepared it, and the composer was coming for the dress rehearsal. He sat with Cindy in the audience. I was a little nervous because this was a legendary figure in music. I didn't know what to expect, what kind of response there would be to my own particular view of this piece of music. But it became clear when we finished that run-through and I went down to talk to the maestro that he was very pleased and in his own very quiet way tried to compliment me. (laughs) And we'll discuss De Natura Sonoris a little bit later on. While traveling to Penderecki's 80th birthday celebration, you arrived to Warsaw Airport and were struck by two huge displays on opposite walls in the baggage claim area, one celebrating Penderecki's 80th and the other honoring Ludolowski's 100th birthday. Now, that type of tribute is not something you would ever see in an American airport. In the U.S., maybe you'd see tributes to Beyonce and Taylor Swift. There are huge differences between the U.S. and Europe culturally, specifically in the appreciation for classical music. Well, it was very startling, to say the least. The idea that 
just waiting for your bags, you would be confronted by these two giants in a world where you assumed most people didn't know who they were. But clearly, in Poland and in Warsaw, these were treasured figures and anniversaries much to be celebrated. Yes, it would have been wonderful if for the 100th birthday of Aaron Copeland, we would have had celebrations all over that included people other than the music industry. But that's just not how we are. It's not our population. It's not our particular point of departure. On the other hand, though, Poland takes pride in its artistic creators, as well as its leaders in science, in education, its politicians. They embrace the whole society. And that was an amazing moment to realize that not only did musicians have the opportunity to feel proud of their profession, but people who had no idea who these composers were, were being exposed to them and perhaps piqued their curiosity. The 2013 festival was full of old friends, including Charles Dutois, Anna-Sophie Mutter, Valerie Gergiev, Julian Racklin, among others. Also in attendance were the presidents of Poland and Croatia, and the entire event was organized by Penderecki's wife, Elzbieta. You noted that she certainly kept everyone on their toes. Yes. She has a remarkable energy. I know very few people who could have pulled off a celebration in this way. And she did it all. She organized it. She fundraised. She did public relations. She supervised the program books, made sure all the artists were coming and going. And of course, most important, she was able to pull together a staff who could bring this kind of project off. It was remarkable. All in all, there was some great music, great conversations during the festival, and you were quite taken with concerts featuring the Symphonietta No. 3, as well as the Kaddish. What are your reflections of those performances? I think context is everything here. And as a person who knew and performed his works early on in my own career, back in the late 60s and early 70s, Watching this journey of this composer, how he developed his own particular language, which back then was considered avant-garde and something in complete defiance of the political system in Poland, and then turned into a composer who embraced the more romantic aspects of music, turning his back pretty much on his experimental years. Much of this music that I heard at the festival, I was encountering for the first time. They tend to be sprawling works. They take their time to unfold to the listener as well as the performer. The works that embody, say, the last 30 years or so, unfold at their own pace. You are taken into this world that's filled with harmonic gestures that harken back to, say, even the 19th century, sometimes the 18th. But at the same time, his use of color in the orchestra and chorus always astounded me. This was how he was able to retain his very individual way of writing through the colors in his music. And that's what struck me in encountering most of these pieces for the first time.
then in 2018, Poland had become a regular stop on your concert itinerary. By this time, you had conducted several of Penderecki's pieces, including the soundtrack for the film The Exorcist. Also during that year, you took part in Penderecki's 85th anniversary festival, which presented 12 concerts in an eight-day period. You conducted the final concert, leading the Warsaw Philharmonic. What are your reflections of that festival and your contribution? We found ourselves with a full week on our hands before we had a concert of my own to do. So Cindy and I decided that we would go to everything, this total immersion into the world of Penderecki being able to hear the wide variety of music, some which ranged back to Baroque eras, to works for solo instruments, to small ensemble, chamber music, choral works. It was an amazing experience. Again, perhaps because I started out as one of the people who enjoyed those early experimental works, I wasn't prepared for the full body of what he produced over the course of his compositional life. I can't say that there was any one piece or one performance that was a highlight because they were all highlights. There wasn't a concert where there wasn't something to be savored. By the time it came to my own performance of his choral work, the Dies Ila, I was able to place it alongside almost all those other works that we'd heard during the week, as well as others that I'd conducted and learned over the course of the years, including those from the 80th birthday. I was given the opportunity, actually, of choosing one of the three pieces that was presented on the last program. One of them was his second violin concerto. Another was the concerto for three cellos and orchestra. And there was this choral work. And I chose the choral work because I thought this was more a reflection of the composer today. Bar 
borrowing on religious themes, but presenting it in a very different way. Usually, if you have a section from the Requiem, it's the moment that precedes the one we played, called the Dies Irae. The second word in the text is Dies Ila, and that's what Penderecki had chosen to focus on. Mostly in brief movements, it moves from orchestral sonorities into the chorus, filled with romantic gestures, but also featuring an instrument whose name escapes me now, but essentially there were very long pipes that extended all the way from the back of the stage to the audience on either side of the stage. And they were performed by two percussionists. They had pitches. They were very large versions of boobams, which are membrane-covered tubes. And you strike them with what looked like ping-pong paddles, basically. It was an extraordinary sound. I suppose that limits performances to some degree, because this instrument, I suppose, has to be made especially for any performance. And it wound up being the very closing work on the festival, and I think very appropriate for that program. Again, like the celebration five years earlier, it was moving. But now that I'd gotten to know him and visited with him, even in times when I wasn't conducting his music, there was something very special about presenting the music to the composer himself. Kind of like a birthday tribute, but one in which the composer already knows what the present is. So let's focus a bit on the De Natura Sonoris number two which was the first Penderecki piece you conducted with the composer in attendance. You noted that this work is the type that U.S. audiences know, reminiscent of the threnody for the victims of Hiroshima. What did you mean by that exactly? This is the world of sonorities. Usually it's thought that music exists with three functions within a piece. Melody, harmony, and rhythm. Starting in the late 1960s, and even operating now through today, many composers have chosen to add a fourth element, and that element is color. Color is produced without the means of melody, harmony, and rhythm, although they are contained within those. You can't say that a work by Bach or Beethoven or Schumann or Mahler doesn't have color. Of course it does. But they also imbue themselves with those other three qualities. Penderecki, alongside a couple of other composers of the late 60s and early 70s, were exploring how to isolate that idea. Can sound be existing just for the sake of sound itself? And the answer in Penderecki's case, of course, was yes. The Threnody is the piece that most people knew and was played quite frequently throughout the world, still is. This introduced us to the idea that the strings, and the strings alone, had a much broader palette of sounds than was initially thought. But it also introduced us to something that became very important, this idea of taking rhythm away. In all of Penderecki's pieces from this period, there are times in the works where the beat is non-existent. The players are asked virtually to improvise within a given amount of time, and often that time isn't specified. This was one of the first things that I asked Pendretsky about when we first met each other. How am I supposed to know when the next sonic event occurs if you don't tell me how long it takes between the first one and the one I'm about to give? 
And he had a wonderful response. It clarified so many things for so many other pieces. He said, this is something that the performers determine as they're doing the work. In other words, he's saying, you will know when it is time to move to the next event. And all of a sudden it freed up having to be constrained and pigeonholed. And so I was able to just move from one event to the other at what felt like a very natural pace, not being encumbered by the bar line. Sometimes I found myself saying that the bar line may be the worst invention in Western music. Sometimes the bar line pigeonholes us. It doesn't allow us to have the flexibility sometimes that we would like. It tells us that the time that takes place between one measure and the next is finite. When Pendretsky is writing, he's saying, no, that's not true. This harkens back to music from the Gregorian times when there were no bar lines, just the notes were there and the performers, mostly singers, were just chanting at their own particular rhythm, at their own particular pace. So Pendretsky clearly trusted the musicians to know what was right, when things should happen. And Dino Terra Sonoris is a piece which does have meters in it, but within those meters there is no set rhythm. Everything sounds free, almost disorganized in places, and that's the nature of what he's trying to do. He wrote three works that are called this. They reflect the relative sound of nature itself, looking to philosophy, perhaps. Some of the sounds are aggressive. In the second one, there are lots of emphasis on low sounds, but also some unusual ones. A metal pipe is struck very hard several times. Other instruments are played in unusual ways. The strings tap the instruments with the wooden part of the bow randomly. The woodwinds scream at their highest registers sometimes. The low instruments are growling down in the basement and the percussion are very active. Everybody acting almost independent of each other. But in the end, when it's over, there's a very logical structure to the work. You feel that a journey has been taken and met. With respect to removing the bar lines, as you mentioned, did this require a different conducting technique on your part? Does it give you a type of freedom to not have to adhere to bar lines? Every conductor has his or her own way of communicating this to the orchestra. Let's say that at the beginning of a bar, the violins start to play and that somewhere before the next bar, the violins stop playing, and then a little later on, let's say the oboes come in. So that's three events that happen within the bar. There's no time. You give one cue. I do it by holding up one finger, so they know I'm at the first cue where the violins play. Then, when I hold up the number two, the violins know that they stop, and on the third cue, the oboes know that they come in. I will have said at the first rehearsal, this is what happens within this given bar, but I can't tell you how long it will be before the next event happens. That's what you have to watch for. So it's fairly common now. You see it with a lot of composers who want this free atmosphere to prevail. Everybody, as I said, has their own way of conveying it. Some do it by just mouthing the words, one, two, three. Others do it by cueing the different instrumental groups, either showing them they stop playing and just giving a point for the second one. My way is indicated by numbers. As far as freeing up things, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily the goal here. It's to be as clear as you can to the orchestra and at the same time convey the musical structure. So while I'm giving those numbers, I'm also trying to show the intensity of how an entrance should sound, or sometimes not, the static, quiet moments that happen. It's a different kind of technique. 
At first, when I began doing it, it was very complicated. I wasn't used to this. But now that I've had a lot of experience with pieces such as this by many, many different composers, it seems natural and I think I'm able to convey it to the orchestra members in a much clearer way. Now, the De Natura Sonoris number one and number two were recorded in 1975 with the Polish Radio National Symphony, and these pieces were featured in Stanley Kubrick's classic film, The Shining. Were you aware that these pieces were in the film prior to seeing it? It's tempting to say that most of us watching The Shining when it came out were unaware that there was any music because we were busy hiding under the seats. On the other hand, though, I was involved in that score for the soundtrack for The Exorcist, and when we heard the Pendretsky canon in that film, and knew that style, also experimental, but just with strings, when this music appeared, and by that time Kubrick was well known for utilizing music from existing materials. So when the music did start, it was instantly recognizable that's who it was. And of course, I stayed through the credits to make sure that's who I was hearing and that's what it was. But again, the times of the 70s were one of borrowing for many directors. I'm not sure how composers feel about that. I suppose they want to be recognized just on the sonic and oral merits of a piece. But on the other hand, you can't beat the exposure to a mass public, whether they know it's your music or not. If they're interested, they'll find out. The second piece, of course, was composed five years after the first, and these pieces suggest a treatise on the nature of sound, but number two is also about movement. Do you feel like this refers at all to the theories of Aristotle, Descartes, Newton, people like that? Probably, knowing Pendretsky, he was so well read. Hard to believe that he wasn't influenced and tried to convey in sound what he might have gotten from these philosophers. But ultimately, a piece of music has to stand on its musical merit. There are very few works that have titles where you are required or even need to have any knowledge of the work that inspired it. One of the best examples would be Richard Strauss's Also Sprach Zarathustra. You do not have to have read one word of Nietzsche to understand this piece. And I think it's the same with Pendretsky. Remember, the Threnody was just that. It did not have the subtitle to the victims of Hiroshima. It was just a string piece. By putting the title in, it gave the listener a frame of reference and was something they could think about. So that last final groan in the strings, that crunching sound, a lot of people thought was the mushroom cloud emerging from the bomb itself. Another thing to be remembered is that in the 60s, when this style was emerging, we were also in the boom and early stages even of the electronic music world. A lot of composers, Pedretzi included, were trying to find a way to bring some of those sounds that they knew from experimentation into the world of live performance music. 
on a related note, when you listen to the various recordings over time, they're notably different. It seems like the earlier recordings are slower and the recordings have different dynamics. The later recordings seem to have more of an urgency and an immediacy. Do you think Penderecki had an influence on the way these pieces were recorded over time? Probably not, mostly because the way we experienced the music was through recordings that he was mostly conducting. So we used that as a basis, a platform to go from. But I think all of us, even in the early days, were trying to find ways to make this music our own, just the same as we would do with a Beethoven work, Brahms, Tchaikovsky. It didn't matter. The other thing is, you pointed out earlier, we evolved in terms of technique. What was difficult and probably took a little bit of time to figure out, and therefore resulting in slower performances, was the exact technique. It would take more time to figure out, okay, now I have to put up this finger, now I have to do this, now I have to give an indication here. As we got more familiar with the style and the genre, this became second nature, and hence I think things moved along, and we could just approach it as a musical work rather than a technical exercise. once asked Penderecki if he realized how difficult his early music was to conduct, and he said that's why he decided to take the podium himself. How would you characterize the challenge of conducting his music overall? It's changed. At first, this was a test of technical expertise. I remember seeing another conductor do one of his works, and he was gesturing frantically to everybody. He spent so much time reminding us of how difficult it was technically that we forgot about the music. And as we have gone through all these years now, where the style is now ingrained in many of us, with the technical difficulties put aside, just focusing on the music, I would say that the music is not difficult technically, but it is difficult musically. You look at one of his scores and you see it as if it was almost a work of art. Leave aside the notes and the instructions for a minute and just look how it appears on the page and then see if you can translate that into sound. I think that's what he would have wanted most of all, having these images made oral. And if you had to say what you learned from Penderecki more than anything else and what your recollections were last March 29th when he passed, what would your comments be? I remember him as a kind and quiet man, very opinionated, but never in a harmful way. Whatever criticisms he leveled were always backed up with knowledge and facts. I can see how a lot of my wife's music, and indeed some of her personality, comes from knowing this man. And for me, I loved his own humility. He seemed a person who knew what he wanted at all times, but never seemed to be affected by the notoriety and degree of celebrity it brought him. I can't imagine he was much different 40 years ago. Maybe he was an enfant terrible, possibly, but I prefer to think of him as I had gotten to know him. Just this incredible, strong giant of a man.
Maestro Leonard Slatkin, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to discuss the great composer Christoph Penderecki. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. This is Max Horowitz, producer and host of Penderecki In Memoriam podcast, created by Anna Pezhanowska and presented by Polish Cultural Institute New York. Thank you to project partners Dukes, Naxos, Ludwig von Beethoven Association, and Schott EAM for sharing Christoph Penderecki's music with the world. We appreciate you joining us in honoring and celebrating Penderecki's life and legacy. Make sure to subscribe.